there's a lot to, that we're going to cover this morning. And so I hope you've kept your Bibles open because we're actually going to start not in chapter 5, but all the way in chapter 4, verse 4, a pretty far ways back. Last week, we talked a lot about God as judge and about how Solomon looks out at the world and asks this question constantly, if this is all there is, if the material world, if this life is all there is and there is no heaven, there's no afterlife, there's no God, then he asks, what is the point of it all? And he says, well, it's just all meaningless. It's all vapor. It, it, it's here and then it's gone and you can never really grasp it. But if there is more, if there is a heaven, if there is a hell, if there is a God who created and continues to, uh, to, to fill people, uh, with his spirit to be new creations, well, that changes everything. This changes the whole ballgame. If there is a God, then the entire way that we think about what reality is um, needs to be shifted a little bit because it means that it's not just, life isn't just all about what we can, what we can feel and taste and sense and, and test and test, um, but it's also about you know, the, the fuller picture of reality is also the theological that it brings in questions about who God is and, and what God's intentions for the world are. And so we see this tension building up inside of Ephesians where he's Solomon, who wrote this book, is constantly asking this question, if this is all there is, then what is the point? And he keeps on bumping up against this idea. But if there is a God, then it changes everything. So we've seen last week all about um, all about judgment and how justice is uh, is lacking on the earth is is maybe a way to put it. And now, uh, having already talked about work in previous chapters, he brings it back towards work. So in verse four, Solomon says, "I saw that all the toil and all the achievement." spring from people's envy of one another. Now he's already made the point in previous verses that work is good, that we should actually do work and we should find pride in our work. But he says, oftentimes our work and our capacity for work and our want to do work gets poisoned by envy such that something that we might be able to take pride in because something that gets twisted and twisted into uh, into an activity that takes over our lives. But he says, this is meaningless. It's chasing after a wind. Being envious of other people, of saying, I want that position, or I want more money, or I want more power. It's all chasing after something that is a, that's a, that's a feather in the wind, or it's smoke. It's, it's vapor. It's smoke. You can't, it's, 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 it's ungraspable. You know, how we think about the world tends to be in the West, sort of uh, phrased as the American dream. But the American dream and the Canadian dream, the North American dream, I think is, is, a, is, a, pretty good, is a pretty good descriptor, is based out of envy. It's an envious dream. It's looking at our neighbors and saying, well, I want what they have. And so 
I'm going to work towards what they have because I envy them for having it. But even that is vapor. Because we're going to get that thing and be totally, uh, totally unfulfilled by it. And then we'll look at another neighbor who has something else. We'll say, I want that thing. And then we'll get that thing and be totally unfulfilled and get look to another neighbor and say, I want that thing. And it just goes on and on and on. It's all vapor a chasing after the wind. But it's not just that it's a vapor. I think Solomon is making a really good point, just bringing envy into the conversation that the engine of our progress will poison our soul. Envy oftentimes is the engine that we use to get further and further ahead in life. But as we lean into it, as we allow that engine to function, all it's going to do is poison us from the inside out. So we strive and strive and strive, but we tend to go life alone. We, 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 we don't invite others into our life to walk alongside us, to support us. Even though we expect others to do it, we don't invite them into it. But he has this uh, wonderful proverb that, that Solomon shares right after this verse that gets towards this idea. Fools run, fool, excuse me, fooled, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one hand with tranquility than two hands filled with toil. He's saying, if you're going to work, at least do, uh, well, well, first off, you, you should work. If you're a fool folding your hands, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not doing anything. So he says, don't do that. That's foolishness. Do, um, if you're going to do work, at least enjoy some life. Have some tranquility in one hand and work in the other. Maybe to make the point even further. If we seek money in life, the thing that we're going to find is that we end up unsatisfied and alone. Money tends to do this to people. If you've ever like read about people who win the lottery in in North America, in the States, in Ontario, other jurisdictions, the really interesting thing to find is that almost anyone who wins the lottery becomes extremely depressed and wishes that they never won it in the first place after after winning because they end up alone. They end up surrounded by people who who don't really want to be friends with them or do want, don't want deep relationships with them, but do want the money that they have. And their relationships become all about the money that they won and not about them as human beings. If we seek after money, and I think this goes with power and all sorts of possessions, we'll just end up unfulfilled. And so... Solomon brings even this theme out even more in the next couple of verses. And he, and he points to partnership as the antidote. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So he, caught, he worked and worked and worked and worked. Built up wealth, built up wealth, but it was never enough. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one 
because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can you keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's this great song by Pearl Jam, who I who I is one of my favorite bands. It's called uh, Soon Forget, and it's really this these verses of Ecclesiastes in song form almost. It goes like this. Well, the the end the ending couple of verses go like this. Sorry is the fool who trades his love for high rise rent. It seems the more you make equals the loneliness you get, and it's fitting he's barely living a day he'll soon forget. That's one more time around, and there is not a sound. He's lying dead, clutching Benjamins, never put his money down. He's stiffening, and we're all whistling, a man will soon forget. And the entire song's about this person who grasped hold of wealth and possessions. But what did he get? He ended up alone with people whistling at his death. May that not be, may that not be you. May that not be us. Scripture has a much better picture and instruction for how we can deal with wealth. And part of it is being extremely generous, radically generous, um, in, in, in mimic of our God who has been extremely generous to us. So as God has been generous, so are we to be. But this passage also points out that, you know, it's actually better if we are in partnership with others because we'll, we'll feel actually more content as we work together. We'll get better return on our, in, on our investments when we work together. And when we fall down, we can pick each other up. And um, in hard times, we can, we can support one another. Partnership is just better when you are living a life filled with toil. Now, this is often used as a marriage passage, but notice it's not talking about marriage. It's talking about essentially the prioritization of relationships. Now, if you read this passage and hear what I'm saying and immediately think, Oh, I want to I want to prioritize relationships, so I'm going to sit back and wait for other people to prioritize relationship with me. You are listening all wrong. Because scripture is action oriented. Scripture is all about what you can do, not looking at what other people can do, and particularly what other people can do for you. And so if you want to prioritize relationship and be in partnership with other people, it's up to you to make that first step. It's not ever it's not other people's responsibility. It's yours. And um come what may, at least you at least at least you'll try, may. But the miserable business of a meaningless life or a vaporous life becomes a little less miserable in partnership in 
a life that has prioritized relationship over wealth and possessions and money and power and everything else that you might think of. So how are you prioritizing relationships? Who can you call this week and say, hey, I want to support you. How can I do that? Is there anything that you need that you need practically? Is there anything that you need prayer for? Who can you call to prioritize relationships? Write their name down somewhere, even, even right now, so you don't forget. Send yourself a text message, put a note in your Bible, um, and then follow through. And, um, and we'll see why the follow-through is very important in the next couple of verses. Uh, let's keep going through. So he's talked about work, and he gets back into the theme a little bit more about advancement, advancing in our work. And he's using really his work, which for Solomon was uh, the kingship of Israel. He says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. It is better to be teachable than to be hard-hearted, is his basic point. And in the toil of work, wisdom is important, especially the wisdom of leaders, especially the wisdom of a king. And so he goes on to talk about the different places that, that kings can come from, be it be prison or poverty. And, he's, and he He's trying to say it doesn't matter where people come from. It matters if they are wise or not. And he makes a really pointed, uh, a pointed argument essentially about older leaders not trusting the young, which is very interesting. And this, I think, tends to be seen um, in just about every organization that, that, um, that the young tend not to be trusted with the future, even though they are holding the future in their hands. But of course, wisdom from God doesn't come with age. Wisdom from God comes from knowing God. And so when our world says, you know who knows best, you know who knows the most, it's the people who have lived longest, scripture laughs and says, no, 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 no. If you ask the Father... He will give you wisdom. It's not about how long you've lived. It's not about how much you know even. But about how well you know God, how well, how, how much you fear him, which we'll talk about in a second. And how obedient you are to his word. Because those are where wisdom come from in this life. And so now we get really to the the crux passage that we're going to spend the most time in that we've read chapter five, verses one through seven. So he says, guard your steps. When you go out to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer sacrifices of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Live wisely, guard your steps live wisely. And when you come to the house of the Lord, when you go to worship, when you approach God's throne, do it to listen. Oftentimes, I think we enter into worship without really reflecting on the state of our souls, without ask, without, without reflecting on, is there something within me that if 
that if God revealed it to me, um, I would understand just how revolting the sin in my life is and that I need to repent of. I think most of the time we just say, well, we're just going to a thing. Then we participate or we're just turning on the, the TV screen and we, we might sing along to a, to a worship song or two or we'll put worship, in the, worship on in the car. We'll listen to some sermons and that will give us the religious fix for the week. This passage is saying, no, you've got to be way more careful than that. Guard your steps and go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Don't be foolish, be wise. And then he gives a, a, a warning that's built on that foundation of God as judge that Solomon had built in the earlier passages that we've looked at in previous weeks. He says, do not be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Boy, that's a, that's a profound text. He says, don't be quick with your mouth, repeating uh, what, what we've seen in other parts of scripture. For example, James 1, be slow to anger, slow to speak, and quick to listen. Why? Because when we speak, wherever we speak, whenever we speak, we are speaking it within earshot of God. We're speaking facing eternity. And we know infinitely less than what God knows. And God knows infinitely more. But our, our words tend to be our thoughts brought to completion. They tend to be a good indication of the condition of our heart. And so when we speak to others or in front of God, which is everywhere... We are constantly showing the condition of our heart at any given moment. So he says, be, do not be quick with your mouth. Don't be, don't be so hasty to show the condition of your heart because it, it'll actually condemn you. And definitely don't, don't, don't be hasty to utter anything before God because God knows everything. Let your words be few. Many words mark the, mark the speech of a fool. The human heart left to its own devices, I think, wants to often speak immediately. If you want evidence of this, just just search Twitter. Go through Twitter and see how people respond to other people. It's often um it's oftentimes you'll see someone tweet something, which is and, and Twitter, if you've never been on it, is character based. So it only has a, a certain number of letters and spaces or periods that you're able to add into a small section, usually just about a sentence's worth. So people will write a sentence, and then other people will comment with 20 or 30 other sentences saying, oh, you're not nuanced enough, you're not this enough, you're not that enough, and I'm going to teach you something. And it's just immediately, we want to speak, 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 speak. We want to explain, explain, explain. But never step back and say, is this the right thing to do? Is this God honoring to do? 
because it's not actually that the problem is not with the amount of speech it's the it's it's the speed with which you decide that you must speak and the quality of the speech and whether it is truly honoring to God. I think this is why I would I would suggest that committing word vomit, just like spewing out as many words as possible as quickly as you can, like um just 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 getting it all out there at random instead of thinking carefully and speaking thoughtfully is an almost sure sign that 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 someone lacks God's spirit. Indeed, in this passage, the Bible calls them fools. But there are other really important passages. We've already alluded to one in James. Actually, we'll take a look at two passages in James if you want to flip all the way to the back of your Bible. You can go to the very back and then work your way forward, I suppose, from Revelation through the Johns, through the Peters, and then you reach James. And in James chapter 1, we'll read the um, the verse I've already said. Be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to listen. But then in verse 26, it says, Those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. And that's really interesting, right? Oftentimes we think... Um, that if we don't do the right deeds, our religion is worthless. But this passage very clearly lays out as the starting point, you can actually, you don't even have to look at many people's deeds. Just look at their words. Look at how they speak about one another and to one another, and you'll be able to tell. If you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, you deceive yourself. If you don't know how to hold your tongue back or you know, sometimes it's just hard and it's a, it's a, it's something that the spirit of God needs to do within us and maybe help us with. But if we're, if we're even in the place where we don't even try to hold our tongue back, if it's not even on our radar of something that maybe this is something we should do, that's a sure sign that we are deceived. That doesn't mean we don't speak. It doesn't mean we don't think carefully and speak carefully. Um, but it does mean if we're, if we're quick to speak and slow to listen and quick to, if we're quick to speak and quick to become angry and very, very slow to listen, we are living in sin. And James makes this case even more in chapter three of this text. And I'm going to read this at length. Chapter three, verses three through 12, because I think it's really important. When we put bits Excuse me. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. That's one of those things like a horse you can put um, onto their faces or into their mouths and and pull on it and it'll make, make the animal turn certain ways, yeah? Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by very strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole, excuse me, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. And that's a, that's like right there. We can stop and say, this is just true. How often do we get in trouble in life because we let our tongue go loose? Our tongues can get us into all sorts of trouble because it is a spark. It's a fire that can burn our world down. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and sea creatures are, are, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And his point being, if we curse others while praising God, if on Saturday we're cursing and insulting other people, and then on Sunday we come and praise God, the cursing is the actual true window of the state of our soul and the Sunday is a lie. So repent because your rudder is driving you away from God. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes here. So Ecclesiastes five verse four. Solomon drives this point even further by talking about vow making. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. So why is he talking about vows? Vows are these statements that we make to God that are meant to earn God's favor or, or have him grant our requests. We see, a, we see examples of it in texts like, Numbers 21, and I'll just read this. You don't have to flip to it. I'll read it really quickly. It says, when Israel made this vow to the Lord, it, 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 it says, sorry, then, then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. So they're saying, if you do this, God, then we'll do something in return. A vow is trying to earn God's favor or have him grant our requests. And we often do this um, with, uh, oftentimes without thinking in times of difficulty, eh? We'll say, Lord, if I do this, then you better do that. If I do this action, if I love this person, then you better give me what I want or do the thing that I want you to do. That's a vow. And Solomon says, you better keep your vow. If you're making vows like that, just willy nilly, you better keep them and you better keep them quick because it's not going to be good if you do not fulfill it. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And by, by, if we make vows and break them, 
we are being we are we are being led by our mouths into sin we can say things like lord if 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 um if you give us a child then we'll raise that child to be a faithful christ follower but if that's your vow you had better follow it and actually seek in every way to raise that child as a christ follower as one example and i think that if you look back on your life and think about this type of framework of vow making of trying to get god to do the thing that you want him to do you can you can come up with all sorts of examples i'm sure of it because everyone does it but this passage says well you know if you're going to make a vow you better fulfill it and if you have no intention of fulfilling it don't make the vow because god's going to judge you based on whether you have lived out the vow that you have made to him why should god be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands if you make a vow and you don't fulfill it why shouldn't god destroy the work of your hands why shouldn't he judge you where you stand because of your broken vow it is certainly within his rights to do it as the creator of the universe so watch our watch your tongue much dreaming and many words are meaningless therefore fear god therefore fear god keep your vow because if you don't you're committing sin and watch your tongue the key the key insights of this this uh this text instead we find this 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 simple phrase at the very end of the passage instead of 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 speaking quickly instead of making vows oftentimes that we have no intention of fulfilling what are we to do he says instead fear god and if you do this you'll be really well off and this is solomon bringing all the wisdom that he has into a really simple phrase this is maybe the most wise piece of scripture in all of scripture therefore fear god because he's we're told in other places of, that solomon wrote in proverbs the the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom if you want to know what wisdom is like you have the starting point is fearing god if you want to live a wise life fearing god is the starting point now what are we talking about when we talk about the fear of god we're talking about respecting god enough to treat him with absolute reverence and respect to treat him as he is which is the creator of the universe the creator of us as creation and the one who was and is and is to come and therefore can guide the universe however he sees fit and can guide the course of our lives however he sees fit so the fear of the lord is this respect of saying this is who you are god and i know where i am i know who i am compared to you it's this knowing it's it's there's this foundation of knowing who we really are that we are by and large self-centered hypocritical self-righteous prideful unwise sin-filled people who knew the grace of god that is given to us through christ and by the way that's the bad news right we we often talk about good news in the church the gospel 
But before we even get to the gospel, we need to accept the bad news that that is truly who we are, that we are truly at the core of our beings because of, because of the sin of humanity through Adam and Eve, that we are, we are self-centered. We are hypocritical. Our hearts are twisted by self-righteousness. We are unwise. We are prideful and sin-filled. And that is just who we are. And left to our own devices, that will, that is, that's the kind, those are the kinds of people that we actually will veer towards. If we stop reading scripture, if we disengage from God, oftentimes that's where we veer towards. But after accepting that bad news, then we can hear the good news with fresh ears. This good news that will maybe for the first time seem truly good that Jesus died for our sins, taking the penalty that we deserve in our place and offering us forgiveness and new life so that those markers of who we are are something that is past and something new is birthed in us that, that helps us to be the people God designed us and meant for us to always be. Jesus takes away our sin and replaces it with his spirit to transform us from the inside out. That's all because of his finished work on the cross. As people who Jesus has given new life to, I think the question this passage brings up is, how then are we to use our tongues? And I think there is, I think this is the answer to confess our sins and to praise him, thanking God for, for, for grace. Confess our sins and praising God, thanking him for grace. Because everything else in life is meaningless. It's vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. But relationship with God is everlasting and will last until everlasting. And so church, as people who have been given new life, confess your sins to him who offers you forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and who will fill you with his spirit and give you a new life. And then praise him for his grace. Be it in your homes, at work, in the car, or gathered on a Sunday morning. Be wise and fear the Lord. Amen. As you go out into the rest of this week, a benediction. May the Lord bless and keep you. May our Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you peace.